This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed News Magazine. I'm Ann Romer. We begin the show with a York Region exclusive. The federal budget was tabled on Tuesday, March the 28th. The country held its collective breath, hoping there was something in it to make life far more affordable, to stimulate economic growth, and to provide a roadmap for a greener future. Joining us now is the Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, making a pit stop here at 105.9 The Region while on his coast-to-coast-to-coast budget tour. Thank you, Prime Minister, for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here, Anne. Let's talk about what everyone has top of mind, and that is food inflation. Did the budget deal in any way with that other than the grocery rebate? Well, first of all, the grocery rebate is a significant thing that's going to help uh, eligible families of of four uh, get up to about $467. It's going to help with the fact that even as inflation is coming down, food prices are remaining high. So that's something that we know is going to help. But on top of that, we're moving forward by reducing credit card fees for small businesses, which is going to be passed on to the consumers in many cases. Uh, We're uh, freezing the interest on student loans forever, so uh, students can have uh, have the kinds of supports. And we're continuing to move forward with uh, the $10 a day child care uh, uh, supports right across the country that's uh, on its way, including here in Ontario. Right now, fees have been cut in half, but that's uh, uh, it's also going to keep coming down. Prime Minister, earlier this week, the head of the Daily Bread Food Bank in the Toronto area made an announcement uh, that... 270,000 people visited the bank, the food bank, in March. That was the highest number in 40 years compared to 65,000 visits per month pre-pandemic. He said, quote, it is the government's duty to ensure that every person in this city, in this country, can realize their right to food. The need is dire. How do you respond to that? The, the need is dire. I mean, Canadians are facing really challenging times right now, and uh, it's much of it linked to global uncertainty, whether it's higher pr- food prices caused uh, by the war in Ukraine and inflation, global inflation, whether it's disruption in supply chains that are still hangovers from the pandemic. Uh, there are challenges right around the world in an economic slowdown. Now, the fact is Canada is better off than most other countries, but that's no, that's, that's no relief for families that are having trouble paying their bills right now. That's why we move forward with significant affordable measures that are targeted to the families who need it most. Over the past years, we've been investing in community organizations and food banks, and that's continuing, Uh, but we're specifically targeting families that need that help because we have to be wary about even as inflation's coming down, finally, we should head down to about 3% this summer, hopefully, we don't want to invest so much into the economy that it's going to start coming back up. So it's getting that balance right with targeted measures. But one of those targeted measures, for example, has sent uh, close to 250,000 kids to the dentist over the past months that had never been able to go before because uh, we're stepping up on on, uh, supports for dental care for low-income and and middle-income families that don't have have, uh, insurance uh, or coverage. These are the kinds of things that are going to make a real difference concretely in people's lives and we're going to continue to step up to be there for Canadians in targeted ways. Prime Minister, can I ask you about the optics of this? Earlier this week, this past Wednesday, the Globe and Mail revealed that Galen Weston Jr. got a more than $1 million raise. Uh, 
in in light of everything that's going on with food inflation, with high prices at grocery stores, what are the optics of something like this? Oh, terrible for the grocery companies, which is why, uh, you know, we've been calling them to committees. We've been, uh, you know, challenging them uh, to make sure that they are explaining uh, what is happening and how uh, they can do more to help families. Uh, We're going to continue to keep the pressure on them because uh, we know families are hurting right now. Uh, But at the same time, even as we're there to support them, even as uh, we're calling grocery uh, owners to account, we're also making sure that we're building a, a solid future for those families. And that's where Canada's really well positioned uh, for the coming years. So yes, there's a tough time right now, and we're doing this targeted support necessary, but we're also making sure that great jobs for the middle class continue to come as we move towards fighting climate change even more, as we move towards uh, a greener, cleaner economy. That's a huge part of this budget as well. So it's about relieving people now of the pressures that they're, they're, they're facing, but also giving them that optimism that they can and should have for the future of jobs in this country. So let's talk about Canada's green energy economy and the commitment in the budget, your government committing to uh, supporting clean growth and progress on climate change. Is this green economy spending aimed at competing with the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act? Well, interestingly enough, the Inflation Reduction Act, in many ways, is aimed at catching up to where Canada has been uh, over the past eight years. Uh, Under the previous American administration, they didn't do very much at all on fighting climate change, on investing in in a clean economy, because uh, the right in the United States doesn't, doesn't seem to believe in that. And that means that they've had to work really, really hard to try and catch up to where we've been uh, in putting a price on pollution, incentivizing investments in clean tech, seeing uh, the growth in good, in great middle-class jobs uh, across across the country, whether it's in uh, resources and cleaner mining, whether it's in uh, energy sectors, including renewables, uh, whether it's in manufacturing, as we're making huge announcements around battery plants and uh, and, uh, auto manufacturers. These are the kinds of things that is giving Canada a lead. So yes, we're going to make sure with these investments that we continue to be competitive. But as we saw with, for example, the big Volkswagen battery plant coming into uh, uh, Canada, these are are things that we're already doing and we're going to continue to do because the world is going in that direction and Canada because of everything we've been doing over the past eight years has a real competitive advantage and even a head start over many of our allies on this. You know it's interesting from my perspective it seems as if you and many other governments around the world would rather invest and offer tax credits rather than fine and because there was a time when so many fines uh, big business that were, were doing things that were definitely against what should be done to help preserve our our green space uh, and and our future. Now it seems that if you offer to invest and to offer tax credits rather than fine, it seems to be the way to go. Well, I mean, if you think about it, you're fining someone, you're punishing someone for doing things wrong. That doesn't incentivize them as well to do things right as if you say, look, if you make these investments, if you decarbonize, uh, we're going to give you advantages. For example, in what we're doing around clean manufacturing tax credits, we're actually not just saying, yes, when you invest in the kinds of technologies that are going to be useful, uh, we'll give you tax credits, but we're tying the maximum amount of those tax credits to actually if they have great labor standards, if they're paying equivalent union wages, if they're giving people, workers, 
great salaries that are going to be able to support their families, they get bigger tax credits from the country, from the, from the government. You can't do that with just fines and regulation. Uh, you need to do that by uh, pushing and encouraging people to do the right thing for the right reasons as we strengthen our communities and grow the middle class. What about those below the middle class? And, and even the title on Canada.ca's budget website says, Strong Middle Class, Affordable Economy, Healthy Future. But what about those who are not even tickling the middle class at this point? Well, we, we see, unfortunately, uh, everywhere around the world right now, a hollowing out of the middle class, and that's leading to anger and frustration. But as of 2015, when we first took office, we made a commitment to grow the middle class and support people working hard to join it. And that remains part of everything we do. We've lifted 2.7 million people out of poverty over this past few years. We've lifted a lot of them into the middle class. These are the kinds of things uh, that we've always been focused on, whether it was lowering taxes, uh, for the middle class and, and lower income folks while raising them on the wealthiest 1%, delivering a Canada child benefit that's made a huge difference, delivering $10 a day child care in six provinces and territories and more to come. These are the kinds of things that make a difference for everyone because we know people need to be able to get those good jobs to support their families, to support their communities. And that has been our, our total focus these past years. And it is paying off. But Right now, there's a real challenge that families are facing, which is why we're supporting them. But we are on a track uh, to uh, continue to do great things as we, as we prepare for a, a, an ambitious future for all Canadians. I want to zero in on the greater Toronto area. Toronto in particular, Deputy Mayor Jennifer McKelvey, very critical and very disappointed when it comes to this budget, saying that it did not include the much-needed money for Toronto. Um. Over the course of the pandemic, we uh, stepped up with billions and billions of dollars in transfers to the provinces to help get them through uh, the difficult time. And quite frankly, as we've come out of the p- pandemic, uh, many of the provinces, uh, or all of the provinces, are doing extremely well. Uh, in terms of their fiscal balance sheets. Many of them are actually posting surpluses and giving tax breaks, uh, while the federal government is, of course, remaining fiscally responsible and restrained in our approach, even as we're targeted, helping people in targeted ways. Um, the cities need to be properly funded by the provinces. The province has the means to properly support the city, and just because we were there during an emergency time uh, of the uh, of the pandemic, uh, doesn't mean we can uh, continue uh, to take the role of the province, which should be funding cities properly. Uh, we're conti- going to continue to step up on many things, including the Direct Housing Accelerator Fund, which is transferring four billion dollars directly to municipalities across the country uh, to help accelerate on housing because that's something the federal government can do but we're not going to start stepping in we constitutionally can't step in and take care take the place of provinces who don't want to fund cities properly uh, it is really on the provinces to make sure that the cities uh, great cities like Toronto continue to flourish do you think we could end this interview on something that encompasses Canadian pride and that is Canadian astronaut Jeremy Hansen has been chosen to go to the moon here's a quote from him earlier this week we're going to the moon together. Let's go. Oh, it's so exciting. I've known Jeremy for a number of years now, and I just couldn't be happier for him. But I couldn't be happier for all of us. I mean, a lot of people, you know, we've seen so many astronauts over the past years, uh, you know, heading to space. It's, it's become a little more commonplace. You see billionaires and people going to space. It's like, okay, we're sending more people to space. Oh, it's neat that they're going to the moon. No, no. Uh, people don't understand 
everyone who's gone to space over the last 50 years has just seen part of the curve of the planet. You have to get out into deeper space. You have to get towards the moon before you can see the full circle of the Earth. In the history of humanity, there's only 24 people who've actually seen with their own eyes the full circle of the Earth, and it's all the Americans who went to the moon. It's so exciting. And do you think that that helps cement U.S.-Canada relations, this particular event? No, I think it illustrates the depth of that friendship, of that collaboration, and quite frankly, the extraordinary excellence of generations of Canadians, engineers, scientists, researchers, and astronauts that have been an integral part of the success uh, of NASA and the U.S. space program. Uh, We have been there from Canada Arm. We've been there uh, from the very beginning, uh, and it's really, really exciting that, uh, that that is being recognized, and we are part of that very first manned mission back to the moon. Got to ask you before we say goodbye, why do you feel it necessary to kind of go on tour with the budget to sort of sell the budget to Canadians? Well, my job as a prime minister is to connect with people, is to make sure uh, that I'm hearing from folks, which is why I do town halls, and talking about the things that actually matter to them. Uh, This is probably my favorite part of the job, getting out there and actually meeting with people and hearing from them and answering their, their concerns and allaying their fears. That's, that's what politics should be all about. Unfortunately, a lot of it is about you know, sending out videos that, uh, that uh, rile people up and amplify fears and anxieties. I'm in the business of providing solutions and alternatives and, and, and options for people to be positive and engaged, and the best way to do that is in person, and that's why I'm so happy to be out across the country. Well, we're glad to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, for joining us on the feed here on 105.9 The Region. Thank you so much, Anne. Coming up next, improving the lives of Canadian seniors. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back. CARP, the Canadian Association of Retired Persons, always seems to be in the right place at the right time. CARP advocates for seniors by rattling the cages of all three levels of government, and it is the squeaky wheel when it comes to money, health, and quality of life for the millions of Canadians in their golden and platinum years. Joining us with all things CARP and why it has become such a strong and passionate voice for our aging but thriving senior population is Anthony Quinn, Chief Community and Benefits Officer of the Canadian Association of Retired Persons. Great to have you with us, Anthony. Thank you. It's great to be with you, Anne. Thanks for having me. So what does CARP stand for? Well, you know what our initials stand for, the Canadian Association of Retired Persons, but what we really stand for is a voice for all older Canadians, and we advocate as a group to policymakers, politicians, and get our voice in the media so that they understand what the needs are of older Canadians and that they are working to meet those needs. So until CARP came along, we're these needs of seniors being overlooked, being ignored? Well, many in your audience may not know this, but 40 years ago when CARP was started around a kitchen table in Toronto, the poverty rate for seniors was well over 30%. 
So 30% of Canadians over age 65 were living in poverty. There were very few social safety nets for older adults. There was no social security. There was no access to medication. And they were making the decision between paying their rent or buying food or getting medication. So the efforts that CARP has made over the last four decades have really improved the lives of older Canadians. And that's generations who are older now, those before, and hopefully we'll be able to maintain those wins that we've had over the years for the next generation of seniors as well. Can you give me a couple of examples of what CARP has been able to do just lately to make life better and easier and more pleasurable for seniors? Well, two of the things that we're focused on are financial security and and improved health care. So if we talk about financial security, the implementation of a Canadian Pension Plan Investment Board is something that CARP advocated for and was successful in implementing. Now, previously, the CPP dollars were held by the federal government in general revenue, and they promised to pay us back when we needed it. But uh, CARP members decades ago saw the need for a separate entity managing our pension funds, and that became the CPP uh, Investment Board. And now we all benefit from having strong financial management of our pension dollars outside of government coffers. How is it that you at CARP, you and all of CARP, have access to political leaders of all stripes and at all levels? Well, I think our strength is not only in our numbers. We have 330,000 members across Canada, but older Canadians also vote. When I attend a CARP uh, meeting of volunteers across the country and I ask them who voted in the last election, everyone's hand goes up, everyone in the room. And I don't have to say municipal, provincial, federal, or the vote for their local dog catcher. Everyone in our demographic is, is a voter. Uh, The vast majority of people who show up at the polls every year are older voters, and the politicians know that, and they pay attention to us. COVID was tough on all of us. And what about seniors? How did they manage through COVID, and what were you there to do in order to support them? Well, it's a sad fact, Anne, that it's not over yet. Many older Canadians are still uh, at high risk for developing uh, the negative side effects of COVID. Luckily, they've had access to vaccinations, but they still feel they can't participate fully in the community. There's a lot of isolation still going on with older adults, and frankly, they're still dying. Uh, Every day, there are are dozens of Canadians dying of COVID who are in that older demographic. So it's it's not over, and that's our message to, to our members is to remain vigilant. But the last three years have, I think, frankly, been devastating to this demographic, uh, the lack of social interaction, the isolation. Uh, we're seeing some remedy now, but uh, it's, it's hard to, uh, to say what, what the future will hold for them because they've had so many years of negative, uh, negative outcomes. And to that end, we, though the budget was tabled a week and a half ago, uh, the 28th of March, was there anything in the budget in terms of health care, in terms of anything, any aspect of it, it's a financial blueprint, that would help seniors? Are we talking about the Ontario budget? No, we're talking this time about the federal. Well, we could talk about both because the Ontario budget came out two weeks ago and a week and a half ago it was federal. So, yeah, let's go both levels. So, for the provincial budget, the the highlights, uh, I think, from CARP, point from CARP's point of view were the 
the promise to implement more funding into home care. So we, we've been advocating for a long time that the best way to help older Canadians age healthfully is to fund them aging in their own homes. Uh, it's a much uh, more financially viable plan if you help people stay in their homes rather than having to uh, end up in an ER or in a hospital bed or in a long-term care bed. If we can help them to age at home, uh, with some supports that they need to to do that, that's that's the best way. And the provincial government had promised a billion dollars over three years, and in this budget, they promised to expedite that funding. So that's positive news for seniors in, in Ontario. Federally, the old age security uh, promised uh, to increase 10% for age 70, plus, excuse me, 75 plus was a promise, but only half of what CARP had asked for. Uh, we, we know that uh, when people retire generally around age 65, uh, they don't have the, the income any longer and they're in need of that old age security supplement. And the federal government increased it for 75-year-olds, but not for the 65 to 75-year-olds. So that's something we continue to advocate for. And our members are telling us that it's, it's much needed, that 10% increase, especially in today's um, inflationary times. Squeaky wheel, as I mentioned in the introduction. Uh, so, Anthony, can we deal with something that is a very difficult subject? Ageism. Are, are our seniors facing ageism? Is there a, a sort of a, a, a downward glance from people when they find out that you are a certain age or, or even older than that? Ageism is one of the last accepted uh, discriminatory uh, aspects of our society. I think uh, it, it is insidious, it's in the workplace, uh, and it's, it's in general society. Uh, one of CARP's wins, I might, I might mention, uh, of the last uh, many years was the removal of mandatory retirement at age 65. So now almost in every industry in Canada, once you hit age 65, you can continue to work without your employer being able to pat you on the back and, and show you out the door. So that was one form of age discrimination that has been overcome. But in the workplace, we hear many anecdotal reports and see a trend where older employees are they're laid off at a certain age. They've reached a, a high level of pay in their career. They're laid off in favor of, of younger a less experienced, lower-paid worker, and, and some of the anecdotes I hear, it, it sounds like a good thing sometimes if someone's in their 60s and they get you know, a year or two salary, they pay for their child's uh, wedding, they take that bucket list tour, but all of a sudden when they want to re-enter the workforce, that's when they see the discrimination. There's, there's no jobs available for people who are experienced and, and ready to continue to work for another 10 or 15 years, and, and that's where they see the that's where they experience that silent age discrimination. So if someone is listening right now and has a problem to deal with ageism or a financial problem or a retirement issue or a question, can they reach out to CARP? Are you there to, to advise as well as offer benefits and support? We are not an individual advocacy, so we don't have the manpower to take on individual cases. But what we do is amalgamate the stories from our members and bring it to the attention of the policymakers and the politicians so that they will put in the protections and make the changes that are required to, to, to alleviate these things. So while we're not a, a service organization or a charity, we're an advocacy group. So when we hear those 
stories of age discrimination. When we hear the stories of problems in the healthcare system, we bring those with the voice of CARP to the policymakers and get their attention. You also offer tremendous benefits and discounts. Can we go through some of those so that people know exactly what they can get if they want to become a member of CARP for just $20 a year? Yeah, it's, it's the best $20 you can spend, <laughs> and in my point of view, from my point of view, to to more than save your annual dues with CARP membership. We have terrific benefits in, in health and travel and lifestyle. And the latest addition to our benefits is a partnership with another not-for-profit association, the CAA, the Canadian Automobile Association, and they are our new recommended insurance partners. So we're encouraging everyone to get in touch with CAA and find out just how much they can save uh, through our relationship with CAA. And they're offering great deals on home, auto, travel, life, and pet insurance. And I can talk about that more, Anne, but if one of your listeners would call to get a quote from CAA, they'll give them a free CARP membership and Zoomer Magazine subscription just for getting the quote. That's how confident we are in this new partnership and it's a great opportunity to see just how much they can save. See, it it it's it's great to grow old, quite frankly. And you've made it <laughs> if you've made it that way. I think that's fantastic. Very quickly, how old must you be in order to join CARP? Well, we fight against age discrimination on the high end, as we just <laughs> mentioned. So we don't discriminate on the low end. Anybody who wants to be a CARP member is welcome to join, as long as you support our mission. And our mission is to improve the lives of Canadians as we age. So that's for all Canadians. We're, we're working to improve the lives of Canadians as they age. And if you're in your 20s or 30s or 40s, you certainly have a loved one uh, who is a, a generation older than you for whom we are fighting for today. And if you are already in that demographic, we're fighting for you, uh, for you right now. Well done, Anthony Quinn, CARP Chief Community and Benefits Officer. Thank you so much for joining us on the feed. And it's been wonderful being with you. Thank you very much. The David Foster Foundation is raising awareness and funds for those in need of organ donations. Kevin Frankish now with a special opportunity to help others. April is National Organ and Tissue Donation Awareness Month. The David Foster Foundation encouraging organ donation now more than ever, and it is definitely needed right now. Uh, the significance of this month can be explained to us right now by the honor Honorary Colonel uh, Michael Ravenhill, CEO of the David Foster Foundation. Hi, Michael. How are you? I'm fantastic. How are you doing, Kevin? I am fantastic, and uh, tell me a little bit about this month and the importance of it. Well, you know, April being Organ Donor Awareness Month, what we're really trying to do is just um, share the importance of becoming a registered organ and tissue donor. Because in Canada, you know, one of the crazy things is we have such an amazing country, but right now we have over 4,000 Canadians that are waiting on the organ donor list, and over 1,600 Canadians are added each year. And that just simply doesn't need to happen, especially in a country like ours. Um, you know, it, it equates out to five deaths a week or one every 30 hours. That's 20 people die every month because they can't get an organ. And, and the simple part about that is if you, if you become a registered organ donor, think about the ripple effect on this. It's one organ donor can save eight lives or improve the life up to 75 people. 
Wow. And, you know, and I'm not going to hide my, my feelings and my thoughts on this. I am an organ donor. Um, I have very strong feelings on organ donation. When you're dead, you're dead, my friends. And I, and I hate to be so frank <laughs> about it. You don't need that stuff anymore. In fact, all it's going to do is decompose and eventually end, back, end up back in the earth. Why wouldn't we? want to save a life. I mean, if we saw a child playing on a highway, we would run out there risking our lives, grab them to save their life. Why wouldn't we do this? Yeah, yeah. And, it, you know, it, it's so true. And there's there's a lot of myths out there, and that's, you know, a lot of the reason why people don't. The other one is a big, it's education. We, we as a country, haven't educated people well enough. And that's really why we're trying to do in April, being Organ Donor Awareness Month. You know, something else that's just staggering to me is, and I've been in this um, field for over 30 years, but Canada has the lowest or one of the lowest organ and tissue donor rates of all developing countries wow. in the world. Isn't that just like That's it's shameful. hard to get your head around that? It's shameful. And, I, and I'm going to be stronger than you because, I mean, you're, you're, you're the head of a big organization and you've got to be politically correct. I, I get it. But I'm not. I'm just going to tell you. I'm going to tell you <laughs> like it is. I think it is. I'm sorry. It's selfish to, to, to not allow someone else to live when you have the ability to do that. Now, you may have your reasons. Okay, I, I understand that. But I, I think one of the most important things that I, I see here, and tell me if I'm wrong, um, is that you just want people at least to talk about it. Yes, absolutely. You know, that's the biggest thing. You know, here's something else. Is if you do decide to register to become an organ donor, uh, organ and tissue donor, what we really encourage you to do is make sure that you tell your family and your friends that that's what you are. So register, follow the David Foster Foundation, and then share your wishes. Because, you know, what happens is if you uh, decide to become a registered organ donor and something happens to you and you're in, uh, you do pass away, if your family members do not know that you are a registered organ donor, what can happen is um, maybe one of the family members doesn't and all the others do. That one can trump everyone else, and they will not take your organs. There's a, there's a, a, a big scare that was put into people years ago saying you don't, don't donate any parts of your body because they just get sent to anatomy schools and they play with your body. Mm. You, you know... There's so much information out there all the time, Kevin, and you're really trying to, you know, you're trying to decipher what's real and what's not. You can have a choice when you're making, uh, when you're registering, if you'd like it to go to your organs to go to science or if you would like it to go to saving life. So there are many different um, ways that you can uh, leave a life legacy because that's really what it is. And I've sat in many, many hospitals with families where they are waiting for that one call to come to save their child's life or their loved one's life. And it's in their darkest hours they're waiting for somebody to give that gift of life to them. All right, give me the one example that stands out in your mind. Don't use any names, even places if you don't want, but give me one example of, uh, of that really stands out in your mind. Wow. Well, there's so many. I, I think the, the one would be there is a little girl um, who needed a heart transplant um, it's a story that's actually on our website at davidfosterfoundation.com, and um, it is, it's one that will just uh, break your heart, but uh, at the end of the day, 
it turned that there was life given to a child that was at death's door. Amazing, amazing story. It's on our website on a, um, a video story, and um, it is one that we can rejoice in. But, you know, we lose so many uh, children and, and people every year. That's, you know, what, what, why we're talking today, and I, and I thank you for being such an advocate for us uh, and being a voice because, you know, we got to get these numbers down. You know, I will say the good one thing is good is there was 15% uh, about 10 years ago, we were around a 15% um, registration rate, and now we're over 30. So we're getting there as Canadians. We are getting there, but we've got a long way to go. There's always been talk, too, of sort of the, the negative option uh, for people, and that is your body will be donated no matter what unless you stipulate otherwise. Uh, do you think that's something we should still consider or think about? Well, it's always good to have conversation around around that. It's it's the opt out versus opt in uh, scenario. Um, you know, I I think that the the greatest thing is just to making the decision of if you would like to leave a legacy. What does it mean to become a registered organ and tissue donor? Um, because whether you're opting out or you're opting in. It's the choice, and Canadians need a choice. We all need a choice, but we just encourage you to talk about it, think about it, register if you choose, and then share, and let others know of your decision. Uh, and I know I get very heated. Whenever I talk about this, I, I, I get heated. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it, it comes from a place where if, if you could just put yourself in the position of especially a parent who's waiting, if that was your child mm. and knowing that, you know, not enough people are signing those cards or discussing with their families. It, it's very sad. And I, I honestly encourage people to at least talk about it. If you're dead set against it, at least be dead set against it for a good reason and find out whether mm -hmm. or not that really is a reason. You have lots of resources on your website as well for that. We sure do. Uh, DavidFosterFoundation.com. Um, you can actually register from any province um, that we, there's a map of the, of the country and you can click on your province um, and, and register there. It's, uh, it's one big thing that we want to be able to uh, be able to not have to speak about because we can go on to another cause at another time. If our numbers go up, we can save more lives. That 4,000 plus people on the donor list and that 1,600 people added a year can drop dramatically. We can save so many more lives and uh and move on to something uh another cause all right and and so people can go to davidfosterfoundation.com uh you can find out how to be an organ donor there uh here in ontario giftoflife.on.ca uh, you, can, you can sign up there. But the most important thing is letting others know about it, letting your family know about it. Listen, I, if I should, something should happen to me, I would like the parts of my body that can be used to go to help those persons. And the rest of your body is still going to be taken care of and processed the way that you desire mm -hmm. after, after mm -hmm. you pass. Uh, it's just those pieces just won't be there, but they will be living on. And I think that's another thing to think. We all want to live on. And this is an incredible legacy. It, it sure is. You know, that, that's something I've seen in many, many families. It's the most incredible thing when you actually sit and talk to a family that has given um, organs of a loved one that had passed away to another family. And when you see those two families meet and, and see each other, I'm telling you, it is the most impactful and incredible 
situation that you can actually um, take in when you see a family seeing. Um, here, again, let me give you an example. Mm-hmm. We had a family that gave a heart from a from a loved one. They gave the heart from uh, that loved one to another family. Uh, they didn't know the family until after, of course, the the surgery and everything uh, had had pro- had gone through, and the, and the person had survived. Well, the most incredible part was is the two families came together, and the one family asked the other family if they would like to hear their. Mm-hmm loved one's heart beating in that other in in the other loved one's um uh chest and that when you see that take place that emotional transfer of of uh two families coming together one giving life to another family when one had lost a life it is the most selfless thing you could ever do in life and um i'm passionate about it i've been um, in this space for 34 years, and I will continue to be passionate about it till I die. Okay. And then I will leave my organs <laughs> for all those that will <laughs> will be able to take them. <laughs> yeah, and you will live on. Thank you so much for this. Thank you for the work that you do. Once again, encourage people to uh, check out uh, davidfosterfoundation.com, uh, giftoflife.on.ca uh, here in Ontario. Uh, thank you very much for this. I appreciate it. You're a good man, Kevin. Thank you so much for all that you do. All the best. Dairy-free milk has been growing in popularity, but is it your best option? Shaliza Backus with the nutritional value. We all want to be the best, healthiest version of ourselves, but that's often made difficult with the amount of information there is to weave through. What foods are really best for us? Is dairy really that bad? To help us navigate this is holistic nutritionist and life coach, Sukena Barwani. Thank you so much for joining me. Hi, thank you for having me. All right, so I I bring some personal issues to the table here. I've got some autoimmune issues. I suffer from eczema pretty badly. And I've heard from so many sources that an anti-inflammatory diet could help with this. And dairy products seem to be quite inflammatory. And I made the switch to oat milk because it's yummy, it's creamy. But I've recently learned that the ingredients in some oat milks could also be a problem. Is this true? Yes. So it depends on what brands you're getting and what more they include into their oat milk. They have different oils, which are inflammatory, which can increase the inflammation in your body. Um, They have certain added gums as well, which can cause um, more issues. And depending on the brand of oat milk, the oats themselves can cause a spike in blood sugar levels, which can also cause other issues within you. So yeah, oat milk is great. Just like everything, everything that's healthy, has pros and cons to Mm -hmm. it. So the oat milk, you have to be careful when you're buying your milk and reading the ingredients. You want to make sure there's no added sugars. You want to make sure there's no added um, colors or flavoring. And you want to check what gums or oils they're using as well. So is that why some of the more popular brands at the grocery store tend to be cheaper than others? Yes. So they're almost like they add fillers. So if you look at some milks that you get, like alternate milks, There's some that have just the nuts in them and water and maybe like a gum to help it stay fresher. But other ones have more added ingredients in, almost like fillers. So we know nuts are expensive. So they're Mm going to be more expensive to make just the full nut milk as the ones that have some extra added ingredients as fillers. So good to know. So I guess sometimes you need to bite the bullet for the, the real health benefits. Absolutely. And speaking of inflammatory foods, what other foods would you consider to be anti inflammatory? So anti-inflammatories are, fruits and vegetables are amazing. Those are all anti-inflammatories to help decrease the inflammation in the body. Certain herbs, um, like 
ginger and garlic. They're anti-inflammatories. Turmeric is another great anti-inflammatory herb. Um, cinnamon. Again, these are herbs you can add into your foods as you're cooking just to help bring any inflammation in your body down. Then you've got the, if you follow a fresh fruit and vegetable diet, you've got some lean meats. Those are all great anti-inflammatories. It's when you add in the processed sugars, the processed flours, um, all those processed foods, those cause more inflammation in the body. The inflammatory oils like the sunflower oil, you've got canola oils, grapeseed oils, all of those are inflammatory oils, so they're going to increase the inflammation. So go for olive oils, avocado oil, coconut oil, ghee. Those are anti-inflammatories. They won't increase inflammation. It's funny you mentioned ghee because that's that's butter-based. So is that still good for you? So it's butter-based, but ghee, what happens is that it's almost uh, clarified. So it takes out the, all the extra lactose and milk product okay. in the butter, and it's just more clarified. So it is better for you than butter would be. Okay. And so if we're taking all these things out of our diet, what are the actual benefits of an anti-inflammatory diet? So an anti-inflammatory diet will just help bring inflammation down, right? So inflammation can... Re- Result in so many different issues within you. So it can be joint pain. It can cause, like you said, eczema, um, skin issues. It can cause um, bone issues. It can cause cardiovascular issues. So by decreasing the inflammatory foods that you're eating, you're decreasing the inflammatory foods that you're eating and increasing the inflammatory foods. You're bringing in these foods to fight the inflammation in the body and help you feel better. So it helps reduce the joint pain, can help reduce the eczema and the skin issues that you may be experiencing. Okay. And what other like diet changes or meal plans do you feel are most beneficial for general health? Because I know there are a lot of specific things for specific issues, but general health? So I always start off by telling people, the one thing you have to remember is that we're all different. So a diet plan that would work for you may not work for the next person. So if you see someone following a diet plan and you're loving their results, it's not guaranteed that you will get the same results. Go ahead and try it, but don't be discouraged because it, it, you know some people take out carbs from their diet. They live by keto and they think keto is a great diet. But for other people, you need the carbs, you need the energy. So it may not work for someone else. So my recommendation to everyone is to include more vegetables. If you can into your meals, you can use fresh or frozen. And also the healthy sources of oil are really important, the healthy fat sources, because they can help you stay fuller for longer. Your body absorbs all the fat-sourced vitamins better. And it's it's good for you to have a balanced meal because it's kind of incorporates everything that you need and it's sustainable. Mm-hmm. It's something that you can carry on through out the years to come. Yeah, it's not like those crash diets or things like that where you fall back into your ways afterwards. Yeah, yeah. This is lifestyle changes, really. Absolutely. I remember back, way back, way back, I did the cabbage soup diet. I don't know if you've heard about it. I have it not. It is horrendous. <laughs> okay. It's not, it's not, I don't think it's common anymore, but I did it and it was horrible. So I lost the weight. It was great, but I still to this day cannot have cabbage soup. Hmm. And was that all you were eating? So um, you're having cabbage soup, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, I believe, and then one other thing. And it was just, yeah, okay. it was seven days and it just wasn't good. But restrictive diets are like that. They're just, you know, you're taking something out and it's not, I mean, it's sustainable. You're going to have to have it again. And sometimes what happens is when you take something out, you binge when you're mm-hmm. able to have it again. So when you finish a restrictive diet, you have an end date. So yeah, I'll be good. I'll be good for the seven days. Day eight, you binge and you eat whatever you want and everything that you worked for those seven days kind of go away. Yeah. Right? Get washed out. We're looking at long, long-term mm-hmm. results mm-hmm. for sure. And as I mentioned off the top, you're a holistic nutritionist. You're a life coach. So what are some of the main reasons that people reach out to you in the first place? A lot of people reach out to me. I'm a gut health specialist as well. So I work a lot with people who have digestive issues because that's where I come from. So I um, went back to school in my late 30s, early 40s to become a holistic nutritionist because I had some gut health issues 
that I was able to heal naturally with changing my diet, taking certain supplements and just clearing things up. And, you know, I went to my doctor at one point. She goes, wow, you had the worst case of this that I ever saw and you were able to make a huge difference. So, you know, with that being my background, that's what people come to see me for. And um, I also work with people who have those um, blocks, the limiting beliefs that I can't lose the weight, I can't, you know, eat better, I can't change my diet. And I help them work through their beliefs and their limiting beliefs and you know, come out the next way, coming out saying, you know what, I don't need to be on a scale every day to know what my weight is. That's a big thing as well. Um, I don't need to count calories. A lot of people tend to get in that calorie, counting calories, mm-hmm. calorie deficit. deficit. Um, so I work with them to see that, you know, to learn that it's okay. There are good calories and calories don't determine how healthy you're going to be. Great pieces of advice. And, and speaking of which, I'm sure that diet advice also can trickle into life mm-hmm. advice for people as well. So I know this might be a very difficult question to answer, but what are the three biggest pieces of advice you would have for people who just want to live a healthier life? So I think you're right. Life and nutrition play a big role together, big part. Um, As I told you before, you know, your gut, a lot of people refer to your gut as your second brain. So I focus a lot on gut health, but your gut also affects your mental health as well, right? So my main takeaways would be try to eat as much of a balanced meals as you can that just helps your nutrition your gut you know it helps you from the inside out try to help reduce as much stress as you can because again that affects everything as well stress is like the silent killer they call it right because the stress will affect your mindset the stress will affect your digestion and it all works together and recently i've been putting a lot of importance on sleep <laughs> yeah the rest and sleep are really really important i think we grew up in this culture where it's like the busier you are the better off you are mm-hmm. and actually now i'm so happy that it's becoming more clear that you need the rest you need to take that time off you need to get that sleep you need the downtime because then it affects so many other aspects of your life yeah for sure all right and if our listeners want some more information or to get in touch with you where can they go they can email me at health and food junkie at gmail.com or they can visit me on Instagram and I'm under the handle of health and food junkie. All right, Sukaina Barwani, thank you so much for joining me. And this has been a really insightful conversation. I feel like I could talk to you all day. I'll be finding you on Instagram. Awesome. Love to hear from you. After the break, the cricket stadium in the making. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back. I'm Ann Romer. Next on the feed, a world-class cricket stadium could be coming to Brampton. Jim Lang with the game plans. Without question, one of the biggest, most popular sports in the world is cricket, and it's become a huge sport in the GTHA in York region and Peel region. And wouldn't you know it, the Brampton Cricket League is exploding with the chance to build a world-class cricket stadium right in the heart of Brampton. To talk more about it, thrilled to be joined by the president of the Brampton Cricket League, Mr. Faraz Salim. Faraz, how are you? Hey, I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm, I know cricket is popular, but when, when you see a number like 54 teams part of the Brampton Cricket League, you realize how much of an impact the sport has made in the GTHA over the last number of years. Of course. I mean, this 54 is just what I had from last year. <laughs> so I am um, not even able to take new teams um, this year. We, we've, we've effectively said that even the standby list is, um, and we're not able to extend even the standby list. And the amazing thing about cricket, I find it's, it's, it's huge in the UK, in South Africa, in Australia, 
in the West Indies, in India, Pakistan. It really is a global game. It, it truly is. I think the, the only other game that that uh, goes on top of cricket is potentially soccer, right? So soccer is uh, truly all around the world, and, and cricket is perhaps number two in, in, in international status. And I know that uh, before we get to some of the plans for the stadium, I'm just amazed for us that it's become so big that cricket's being played as a high school sport around the metropolitan area, which is great to see. Yes, it's part of the Ontario um, educational curriculum. It's being offered in schools. The schools that have the facilities are actually offering cricket um, um, for youngsters to play and engage. And some of these folks come from uh, multicultural families. Their parents played the game or know about the game. So they're interested. The city of Brampton has now started to offer a uh, beginner's cricket program offered by the city itself, which is uh, very unusual. I don't think there's many cities around um, that are actually offering this kind of program. So the demand is there and uh, the supply is limited. Well, if anyone's been driving along the 407 by the 410 and have seen the CEA Center sporting complex with the arena and sports fields, there is a large chunk of land there. And the plan is to build a world-class 5,000-seat cricket stadium that can expand, if I'm correct for us, to 20,000 seat. And that'd be a game changer for people around here. Of course it'll be. Um, it, you know, our plans and suggestions for the stadium is that it needs to be uh, officially the, the stadium is a multi-use stadium so it'll be used for cricket and at the same time it'll be used for other sports as well so when cricket is not being played you can convert it to be used for other sports in brampton right now there are facilities that exist where soccer has um, a relationship with cricket so cricket plays certain time slots and soccer takeover after cricket is done or vice versa so for this stadium in particular, it will be a multi-use stadium. But cricket gets the highlight for some reason, which we're happy with, no problem. But the concept is that it's supposed to be a multi-use stadium. And yes, for international cricket games, it'll it'll be used in the city. I'm glad you cleared that up. Speaking with the president of the Brampton Cricket League, Faraz Salim on the feed. And once it is built, uh, the, the opportunity to have international cricket in that stadium in Brampton, I think is going to be great for sports fans and just the community in general, because I mean, I've been lucky enough. I've watched some of the uh, professional India cricket league. It's almost like the version of hockey night Canada, Monday night football. If you've never seen it, it's Mm -hmm. an absolute spectacle. It is. It truly is. People come from um, all over the world to watch games in India. People within India are are lining up to watch games. It, It truly is a, um, a very attractive sport, and even the G T twenty, the global T twenty, held um, was held in Brampton in 2019, and there were lines of people looking to get into to watch the game. And this was the first time a major competition like that was held in Brampton. So our our suggestion and vision for that area is that yes, there's a multi-use stadium, and yes, cricket will be profiled. But that whole area will become an economic hub for the city. People will come from other places. There'll be hotels, restaurants, nightlife, a whole bunch of activity that will stimulate the, the Brampton as well as local surrounding economy. Yeah, and which is which with that trickle down effect is good for everyone involved. And I just think it's it's exciting that um a facility like this able to handle different sports and bring and basically introduce different sports to different people, boys and girls, you're, you're setting it up for generations to come. That's the plan, and that's, that's the vision. And um, hopefully we're able to proceed with it. Uh, the idea is that this will be used for years to come. Like These things are not built 
to be used for um, as a temporary structure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now I'm thinking, um, what kind of level of financial, I guess, incentive and help do you need? Is it a municipal, provincial, federal, all of the above to help get this thing built? I think right now the city of Brampton is looking at a private-public partnership. So the RFI is out for companies or private individuals or entities who are interested in partnering with the city to um, to create this um, this project. So it'll be looking at some money coming in from the municipal government, some money coming in from a private partnership, and perhaps there's certain funds available at the provincial or federal level, but that's something I don't have the information on. You know what? It's always amazed me. I know there's a certain culture to rugby and soccer, but crickets always seem like a real gentleman's sport. The, 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 the decorum, the officiating, is that just through the history of it or just the way it's played and the tradition? How? Why is that? Yeah, it truly is. I mean, my kids play other sports as well, and sometimes they, they wonder how cricket has no contact, no abuse, um, no yelling at the referee and not creating any scene on the field. It truly is a gentleman's sport. There's no physical contact. There's very little verbal abuse, and yes, there's sledging. You you know you try to take over your opponent by saying something unusual, but outside of that, it's um, it truly is a gentleman's sport. You you enjoy your game. You show respect to the opponent. Uh, you respect the officials on field, and um, and one team has to win eventually in, in a in a game or two. But that's how it's supposed to be played. In good spirits. I guess in, in your dreams, Fareez, you see this build and standing there like a almost like a proud parent watching great cricket played in the heart of the GTHA right there at that stadium in Brampton? Of course, that, that will be ideal. In a few years from now, the, the stadium is built. There's international games held. There's games within um, the provinces. Alberta is coming down to, to Brampton playing. Vancouver is coming down to play with us. So that will be the ideal scenario. We also have our local um, com- competitions, then we have provincial competitions, and then there's teams from other countries coming to host, uh, uh, coming to play and be hosted. I love it. Uh, Mr. Faraz Salim, he's the president of the Brampton Cricket League. Thank you so much for joining us on the feed and talking about what potentially would be a game-changer world-class stadium that could host cricket and other sports right here in the GTHA. Thank you so much, sir. I appreciate your time. Perfect. Yeah, no problem. Have a good day. If you missed any part of the feed, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you so much for listening.